Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. This episode is with Jay Armstrong Johnson, who, as he puts it, is a queer kid from Texas. He found his tribe in musical theater after being bullied and growing up in a place where he didn't quite feel like he fit in. His perspective on life is really cool because he supported himself at such an early age. He put himself completely through college, and now he wants to pay it forward and give back as much as possible. So that others can possibly have the the same opportunity to find the success that that he's found. He's just really, really such a sweet guy. And we talk about this in the episode. He's just one of the nicest people I know and the most genuine people that I know. Just a quick reminder to make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast on Facebook slash on Facebook slash official theater podcast. Please leave a rating or a review wherever you are listening. And now, everybody, please enjoy this episode with Jay Armstrong Johnson. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest has appeared on Broadway in Hair, Catch Me If You Can, On the Town, Hands on a Hard Body, and of course as Raul in Phantom. He's known on the Magic TV box as Will Olsen in ABC's series Quantico, and he might just be one of the nicest people I know, which we are going to get into shortly. He is the driving force behind the Hocus Pocus-themed I Put a Spell on You, which raised over a quarter of a million dollars for Broadway Cares last year, and is now prepping to celebrate his birthday with you! And you, and you, and you, because it's going to be live-streamed on September 1st from 15 before below jay armstrong johnson welcome to the theater podcast oh, alan what a lovely introduction you made me tear up a bit really <laughs> a little bit yeah <laughs> well you you are super nice because i was just you know i google i google people's names and i look up credits and things to prep for these interviews and, and i put in jay armstrong johnson Jay Armstrong Johnson, you know, spelled and and spoken correctly um, (laughs) into the Google machine. And one of the first videos that comes up is singing to healthcare workers. Uh, And uh, I'm just like, you just go out and you're you're helping the homeless and you're singing to healthcare workers. And I and I put a spell on you. You're going to do again 
this year, 2021. And I know that that the details are still being worked out at the time we're recording this. So obviously, uh, to listeners, where's my link? Um, Go to broadwaycares.org slash spell for the latest info because it's going to be changing between now and uh, when this episode drops. But... Like, why are you doing all of this? What what is what is going on? And okay, for those who don't know, I put a spell on you. Let's start there. What is that for people who don't know? Oh, well, you know, I'm a queer kid that was raised in the '90s, and Hocus Pocus is my favorite movie of all time. Judge me if you want. But <laughs> there is something about that Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy and Jimmy's performances in that campy ass movie. Um, that Disney produced back in 1993 that um, spoke to me on a deep, deep level. I loved Halloween as a kid. It was the thing I looked forward to most. And I always knew that I wanted to like be the Sanderson sisters for Halloween, but I knew I didn't want to half-ass it. <laughs> I knew that like I needed like money and designers to like really pull off the look. So after being on Quantico for three seasons, I had some money in the bank and I started producing my own concerts at 54 Below and I had a live album because of it. So when we dropped the live album, we decided to do our CD release party at 54 Below and it happened to be in October. And so I had this wild idea to make it a Halloween CD release party. So I got my buddy David Withrow, DW, to do costumes, and I got my girl Katie Beatty to design wigs, and I brought on some friends to do our makeup, and so I just decided to put a Halloween show on in conjunction with this CD release, and then I realized that I spent all this money on costumes and hair, that (laughs) I was like, well, this thing should live on. we should turn this into a yearly event. And around that time, I started working with Broadway Cares a lot, um, doing Broadway Backwards and Broadway Bears and really got um, super uh, into uh, the work that they do um, and the money that they raise. And um, so I had this dream um, to one day partner with them. So it was very cool last year when they came on board um, to be our benefactor. for I put a spell on you and we thought we had a meeting with him um, two Januarys ago. And that was before the pandemic actually mm-hmm. kicked us in the tush. So they, they said that they'd be down to, to do it. Um, and then the pandemic happened and we pivoted and then put together a virtual event, you know, New York in the phase four of reopening during the pandemic was allowing for television and film production because um, live theater was not back by then. And so we really decided to go all in and we wanted to not just put on another zoom concert from our homes. Um, we really wanted to like produce it well and give the people um, something uh, that was different and exciting and fun and ridiculous. And, you know, it was six or seven months into this crazy pandemic and there were just a bunch of artists that were sitting at home doing nothing. And every, almost everyone that I asked to come on board, regardless of what, whether they were hair or makeup or wardrobe or music artists or editors or directors of photography or whomever it was came on board and gave 110%. And then we ended up raising a quarter of a million dollars um, and produced something that everyone was really, really proud of. I mean, it's an incredible production. It's like, it's like you're watching a full on high end, big budget movie. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like you did it. I mean, to answer my own question here, I guess it sounds like you did it just because you could and didn't no, I, I was gonna say didn't know how, how hard it was. A lot of people right. have gotten to where they are in life because they're like, "Well, I'm gonna do it." And they, if they had known 
in the beginning how hard it was to get to the end they would have never started correct <laughs> <laughs> and so now you're at a point where you've got a reputation and a crew and uh and a a i guess a, a procedure right to to yeah. do this and it sounds like it's going to be something that lives forever and i mean the the promos for it the the promo shots the promo videos everything i'm seeing is so so high end you see so much that happens around the city that looks like oh i could tell they did that themselves but sure this stuff like everything you touch just turns to like magic nice niceness professionalism it's it's amazing uh thanks alan it was me and about 150 other people that helped pull this thing off so i can't take all the credit (laughs) (laughs) and so now on september 1st is going to be your 25th birthday again and (laughs) yes (laughs) and you have chosen to share your birthday with the internet with special people at 54 below live but also with the internet so this this show is is all about country music inspiration right because you you come from texas so i'm gonna stop and let you do the rest of the talking here explain (laughs) it explain to us bumpkins what's going on well honey here's what happened on a balmy september evening and 19 um i i was raised in texas i like grew up in households that were just only playing country music on the radio i don't even think i knew what like pop and r&b and rap was until like i started getting babysat by my friend Lindsay. (laughs) um but country has always been in in my bones in my blood my dad is a drummer and he has been drumming and like country western slash classic rock bands for as long as i can remember you know my last show at 54 below was like kind of an amalgamation of who i am uh musically and so it was very eclectic and we had everything from pop to country to religious to musical theater to classical um and so i just want to hone in on what it was that kind of got me started in music in general and that's that's country hanny um, there is not a lot of crossover that I have found between musical theater and country. So you you are, aside from being a special snowflake, you're also a special snowflake in that <laughs> regard. And I absolutely love it because I think there's a lot of influence from, of course, all genres that, that make its way into musical theater. But um, and I want to I want to touch too on the, on the cultural aspect of growing up as well, because, you know, like you said, you're a queer kid in Texas. Uh, I know a lot of people that have come out of Texas and don't ever want to go back because of <laughs> one reason <laughs> or another. But um, it sounds like, well, I guess let me stop there and pause for a second. Did, did you have, um, did you have trouble uh, or, or conflict or whatnot, like growing up as, as a young kid in Texas? For sure. I mean, I think everyone else around me realized I was queer before I did. I mean, the, the kind of bullying started as early as like the third grade. I guess they could smell the homo on me, but I was a straight <laughs> A student and I went to church every Sunday and I was, you know, an upstanding citizen to my head. And so the kind of messaging around homosexuality was that it was an abomination and then it was bad. And then it, so I was just, I convinced myself that I couldn't be queer even a little bit because I was a good kid and so yeah it it really was kind of a torture it was torture um in my early years starting as early as third grade and it wasn't Hmm. until i found theater where like my life actually took off where i i found those 
humans, my tribe, you know, that uh, were misfit toys like me. Um, so the second that I did find theaters, the second that I found like life and love and excitement and even even then in the theater community still being queer was um, not great. <laughs> so it wasn't until I started doing professional theater that I really started finding like queer role models and realizing, oh, these are humans. They are smart and they're funny and they're talented and they're nice. It was difficult. And I definitely ran away from Texas as fast as I possibly could to try to get to New York. (laughs) I've been away from home for 15 years now. And it's funny how it all continues to come back to me, especially in music, even Christianity has been something that I've really had a hard time grappling with since I've left home. And now I have a friend of mine who's the pastor at my church, and she is a single mother who adopted a refugee child, and she fights for LGBTQ rights and is a vocal about it. And so she's kind of brought me back to like what it really means to be a Christian and to accept everyone. And mm-hmm. so I don't know, um, it's it's been a full circle experience when it comes to Texas, because there are those good people there. I mean, my my county went blue for the first time in like 35 years, you know? So there's, there's hope for Texas. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to, I wanted to say too, that I'm not trying to stereotype. Um, I'm talking about the general mass masses of, uh, uh, of data and the state goes red and, but there are, yeah, there are pockets of blue and you know, you hear about legislation. It's really like what makes the news. Right. And when you're in the scene and when you're in the network, of being local in Texas or being local to anywhere, of course, you're going to sort of gravitate towards like-minded people. And there's a bit of confirmation bias that happens too with the type of people you surround yourself with. But I totally understand that I, in North Carolina, I grew up in a red, in a red County. And in order to be accepted by the parents of the girls I wanted to date, I had to go to church with them. And there was something, even at a young age, there was something very hypocritical to me about that because I was like, aren't these people supposed to be accepting? Aren't they supposed to be loving and, and be okay with everybody? But yet I'm being ostracized for not being one of them. And now I have to change. Like it's, it was this whole backwards thing. So I, I feel like I can relate a little bit to some, some of this situation. I guess the underlying message is uh, just be good people. <laughs> which right. which now now that you've explained a little bit of that to me that goes to the the philanthropy the healthcare workers the homeless the broadway cares uh, outreach and everything else that you've been doing because you're getting back to to really the roots of your spirituality the roots of christianity the roots mm-hmm. of just being a good person full stop well, and I, I grew up as a scholarship kid, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so when I started doing theater, I never had to pay for any classes. My, my dance teacher scholarship me all the way through my training there. Um, and, and, you know, I, that's kind of the community gave to me um, and helped and like gave me a voice and told me that I had talent and also gave me the means to actually do the thing that I found that I loved. And so, I don't know, as someone that was, uh, <laughs> that received that charity, I feel like it's only, it only makes sense to give it back. It's perspective, right? And it's, right. There, there are kids who are born into privilege and they, they don't understand 
not just getting what they want or they can just go to any school or whatever the case is in terms sure. of, of their path laid out for them because they're it's literally fortunate. It's, it's luck that they are created into a life that means they don't have to struggle as much as some others maybe have to. For and sure. I totally see that, you know, it, it's important to give the opportunities to those who may not have it because if there aren't people like you, if there aren't efforts like this, then, then nothing ever changes. And it was what's funny is that it's those people that were born into privilege that were the ones that were like helping me get through it, right? So it was all of the people that had the money that were donating to these organizations that were allowing me to be there on a scholarship. So, you know, it takes it takes a village, Alan. A <laughs> hundred and something people to put together a nice <laughs> professional right. scholarship. Right. Yeah, no, it really, it, seriously though, it does take a lot of people. And, and I, I appreciate the people who have enough that it's extra that they can give back to people who don't. And the, the efforts of, of like Ham for Ham and other shows that are really trying to educate. And I think that's, that's become such a big thing in the community now, like with the rise, maybe with social media, I sort of tie it to that because there's so much visibility mm. into not only the show, but the message behind it and, and what the performance, uh, the performers are representing. So like Jagged Little Pill, for example, that show deals with transracial adoption, addiction and sexual assault. And so all of the characters, the real life people who are playing these characters are involved with now all of these outreach and education videos and things that are trying to help people find resources and help people become more educated and find help if they're considering suicide or if they've been raped or whatever the case is. And oh, do you agree with this at all? That Absolutely. There's an obligation a little bit now by the shows to educate. Well, and I, I feel like that's kind of how I jump-started my career on Broadway with being in the cast of Hair. I mean, I, I talk about this often and how it was like such a life-changing experience, not just because I was fulfilling my lifelong dream of being on Broadway, but it was around the same time that we were fighting for marriage equality. And so our cast, led by Gavin Creel, who started Broadway Impact, was we were living the life of the 60s hippies on stage, but then off stage we were going to rallies in Times Square, and our producers allowed us to march on Washington for marriage equality, and we sang at the Capitol um, in front of 30,000 people, let the sun shine in, after Lady Gaga gave this like crazy <laughs> speech saying, do you hear us, Obama? You know, so... This I this idea of like social justice became this like theme that I needed my career to have. I didn't just want to get up there and do a kickball change and sing a high C. I, I wanted the, the art that I do to actually make change in the world in the way that like it changed me as a young person and gave me purpose. Um, so yeah, I absolutely agree with that. All right, I love this subject that we're diving into here. Um, I I'm trying to figure out what my question is because as you're saying this um you know there are there are the good people of course there are the good people everywhere and people trying to help people trying to educate people trying to inspire and and literally just donate to create the financial backing to allow these programs to exist so thank you mm. to all of you who you are but in the well i guess not a but and in this industry we've seen lots of not so good guys and not so good people you know the scott rudens of the world now that like your time is up and you can't be a jerk anymore and so there are 
uh, there's lack of representation and lack of diversity in this industry that at the same time on the other side of the same coin is trying to usher in diversity and usher in change and usher in education from the inside from where you are in your position what you've seen in the shows that you've been in especially something like hair that stood for equality so much is there this conflicting sort of dichotomy between the, the high-end production team and the and the cast or what the what the representation of the show needs to be yeah I, th- I think that that's kind of like the deepest issue amongst our community right now and of my friends that are back in Broadway rehearsals right now everyone is saying across the board how different the rehearsal rooms feel and they're hiring in people that have a specific focus on social justice and on making sure that every company member feels heard and seen. And I have friends that are starting coalitions where they're bringing in artists of color and underrepresented voices to be a part of the like general management, stage management, producerial world. Cause I think that's where we've kind of lacked as an industry is that there's usually been some representation on stage and that's very performative. All right, cast a person of color in this role to make it seem like we're lifting them up, but it's the people that are making the decisions. Um, that that's not been represented well through casting directors, through producers, through management. And so I, I think that that's where the world is really starting to shift and it needs to continue to shift in that way. But I'm confident and I'm hopeful that this past year and a half of reckoning in our industry has really made us have to make that shift in a substantial way. And so I'm, I'm excited about what this, these next few years are going to kind of look like in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to take a little bit of time, and and oh, I yeah. hope that I hope that people don't get impatient with the process too, because right, y- you need to you need well, all these organizations first need to realize there's a problem, and then they you know they acknowledge it, then they start going out trying to solve the problem, and everyone's not going to get it right the first time, or maybe the second time, or maybe even the third time, and there's right. going, but we have to we have to continue to work together to to find equality and to find to find equity and make sure that everybody and everything is equally represented because at the end of the day we just want to get on stage and sing our kickball change ass off right right that's right (laughs) that's totally right i miss it so much (laughs) we're going to take a short break stay tuned for more of the episode We skipped over the part where you found theater and found your tribe. So I want to get into that. How did you find, how did you first decide that you were getting into theater, musical theater specifically maybe, and like start looking for dance classes and scholarships? What's wild is that it was actually through the friend of mine that's now the pastor at my church. Um, Her name is Allison Lanza and her brother David Lanza were a part of this community theater group called Kids Who Care. And so I was starting to sing in the church choir as a boy soprano. And that family kind of saw that I loved to sing and that I had some talent in that area. And so they kind of brought me to Kids Who Care. And, you know, my very first audition was for A Midsummer Night's Dream, the rock musical. And, <laughs> I, and I got cast as Puck. And so that was the first time I stepped onto a stage that had a full set and lights and stage haze. And I remember that first day of tech being like maybe one of the more magical days of my life. And that's when like 
that theater bug really bit me. And I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it also happened that my parents were going through a divorce around that time. And so it was a fantastic escape from my like tumultuous home life to then go and find oh, this wow. very fanciful, exciting new space where I was um, accepted and elevated and loved um, and kind of groomed by a community of people when I hadn't felt that um, previously. That sounds fucking amazing. So I think, <laughs> how old were you at this point? I was 12. 12. Oh, I, oh that is, that's, I think, one of the worst years. <laughs> I, I know, right? I, oh my God. That's like puberty starting to hit and you're like, I think I, what is this? feeling that's happening to my body yeah i oh i remember being 12 it was horrible and and finding yeah i think it was around that time too that i i me too it was it was a time when i was like i think i need i need something more i don't like the jockey sportsy beer drinking kind of path that's not my avenue and but what else is there in this tiny town filled with religious zealots and it was it turned into for me a lot of uh a lot of choir and and community theater and just an open-mindedness a people a group of people with open-mindedness that just didn't care what your background was right and it felt really really it felt really good so i'm totally with you all right so then dance classes and and singing your 12 going into community theater and were you were, was there ever a moment from that or i guess were was there ever a process or a, uh, a path that you thought you might go down that was different from community th- or from musical theater or were you just like this is it this is all i really want to do now i mean i kind of knew at an early age that i wanted to be an actor i don't know why i thought that but like as early as like the fifth grade when mr ingram's class was putting on the annual romeo and juliet play the much abridged version um i knew like my sister played juliet the year before me and like i wanted to play romeo so badly and i was one of the only maybe boys that wanted to wear white tights and recite shakespeare in front of the entire school body so there's always been something in me that wanted to do that i wanted to be an actor i even wrote mr ingram a note saying please consider me for the role of romeo and i think i was the only person that actually did that (laughs) Um, but I guess if I had I I was a big swimmer up until that point I was like winning gold medals at like the country club um, because there was a while that my family was doing pretty well financially and so we were part of a country club and I would swim every single day and I was like a little fish Um, and so I thought swimming was going to be my path it's it's kind of always been theater and acting. No, it's interesting because I guess you just find stuff that you're naturally good at. People just kind of gravitate towards it. But yeah, it's the it's the the tribe. It's the found family. And mm. I wonder too. You said your parents were going through a divorce. Was it a time too where you were kind of um, just sort of looking for looking for something stable as a kid? Right, you're seeking attention, and even adults too. But like that validation sure. that maybe you weren't getting. Yeah, I I think that this whole, I think because school life was so terrible and like I didn't really have friends and I spent my lunch periods in the library, um, like I think that 
this idea of hyper masculinity that I was n- not being seen as when like my parents split up and dad went away. It was almost like, Oh, what a relief. I don't have this hyper masculine person in my house that I'm supposed to live up to. And so a- I remember as a 12 or 13 year old being like, Oh, this is actually better. I'm not as nervous anymore about, you know, being a man around the house. And so then when I did find that tribe that actually loved me and accepted me for who I was and what I did well, then like all of my chips were in that thing, (laughs) right? Like I put 110% of my energy there. So Hmm. even though I was still being ridiculed at school, it didn't matter because I knew I had play practice after. And so that was what kept me going. Was your was your dad, I mean, it doesn't sound like he was very supportive of the performing arts. Well, that's the thing is like dad is a drummer and he's a singer. And so I knew that he his dream was probably to be a rock star. Um, and then he didn't follow that path. And so there was a certain level of support there. And like now dad, I mean, dad and I were estranged from each other for about four or five years after the divorce. But then we started um, actually getting a relationship back. And now he's like maybe my biggest advocate and Hmm. he will drop everything to go wherever I'm doing a show to see it. He and my stepmom, they like make sure that they have the money to go and fly out to San Diego or see me in a show or fly out to St. Louis and see me at the Muni or come up to see me in a Broadway show or even in an off Broadway show that they might not like the character that I'm playing because I was playing a crazy boy scout. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, I think at the beginning because of how dad was raised in that hyper-masculine Southern way that that's just the way that you raise a boy. And I think my mom had the same thing. So I can't fault them for maybe me making not feel uh, like I was on the right path. Cause that's just how they were raised as well. But you know, now that they've seen how happy I am and how successful I've been, um, I have nothing but support from those peeps and they love me for my big queer self now. <laughs> <laughs> there are people that sometimes are, again, speaking from experience of where I grew up that are so set in their ways and just unable to see anything beyond the tip of their nose. And I, sure. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that your parents are, are able to just be happy that you're happy. And yeah. a lot of people don't have that. They're they'll, come out to their parents and then they get kicked out of the house or they want to go into uh, something that's not being a lawyer, a doctor or any of the other, you know, put in air quotes now, guaranteed money making jobs, which not even that's the case really sometimes anymore. And they just get ostracized and get, you just get crapped on all day long by their parents for not having something that is eventually, I think, going to benefit the parents, right? Right. Because maybe it's an insecurity with the parents that you want your kids to do better so that then they can help you out later because you didn't do well enough in your life. Yeah. A a lot of my friends that I think have dealt with those issues of their own queerness in their family were like the more privileged kids where like there was money kind of tying them to their parents. And so I kind of had the luxury of not really having that tie. Uh, I've paid my own way through college. I have supported myself since I was about 17 years old. And so I didn't have the pressure of what it meant to like inherit money or to like stay tied to my parents in that way. And so I don't, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Cause I really felt like I was kind of on my own and really fending for myself at an early age too. I don't know if that. No, 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 absolutely. And, and 
there's a lot of success in in I guess uh, later on in life, but when you have these kids who go out on their own, and even a lot of them who have legally just become emancipated, so uh-huh. that they don't, so they don't need their parents. They realize that at, sure. at an at an age, they're self aware enough to realize that that they're better off on their own, get emancipated, go off on their own, and then they've got a completely different outlook on on what success is and what right. uh, on having a work ethic. Because you're right, there's. There's so much that you see of people who are just saying, I'm going to go on TikTok and I'm going to be an influencer and I'm going to make a lot of money and it's going to be overnight and I don't have to work very hard. I mean, I'm sure I, TikTok is to be a good good YouTube influencer and then Instagram influencer and now TikTok influencer. It takes a lot of work to be really, really good. But sure. again, you don't hear about the struggles of everybody who doesn't make it. And there's like tens of thousands if not more of people who are trying and never you never hear from them they don't make all this money so it's it's again it's it's kind of the curse of social media i think too in that um you're only presented with the best of the best more or less i think you're doing you're doing a good job with it because you're actually using you know like i said you're using your your position now and your privilege now to to help others and to give back and to and to raise money for those who don't have it. Yeah, on well, the internet has been such a lo- lovely thing that happened to, to us as a society when it comes to raising money. Because, you know, we've done our live show and we've raised money for Broadway Cares. But like at the end of the day, after paying all the artists in the venue, I could only send Broadway Cares a couple of thousand dollars. But with this new virtual event, it could reach literally millions across the globe. And I think that that um, that kind of visibility um, and that that ability to raise money on such a broad level was why we were able to kind of raise the money that we did. And you've you've dialed into to a very a very popular niche of people who love hocus pocus. <laughs> uh, there are so many people. It's true. I'm a part of three different Facebook groups about it. We love our sisters. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you ever met Sarah Jessica Parker or Kathy or anybody in person? Um, I have met Sarah Jessica Parker on set of Sex and City Two. Oh, right, right. I was in that choir, that gay men's choir, in that wedding scene at the mm-hmm. beginning of that movie. And I remember her saying, like, we were like, Sarah, when are you coming back to Broadway? And she was like, oh, honey, Broadway's too hard. <laughs> I'm not coming back to Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I met Sarah. And actually, I met Kathy and Jimmy because a friend of mine I was doing a show with off-Broadway at Roundabout um, right before the pandemic hit us. They shut us down early. I was doing Darling Grenadine at the mm. Roundabout Underground Space. Um, and she came to see my friend Ari. And so I actually got to meet her in the lobby after the show. And I really had to bite my tongue to not talk about Hocus Pocus. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm sure she gets it. I'm sure they get it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. The, the I mean, it's it's influenced such a generation. There's, there, there, there are movies. There are uh, shows and instances where, where <laughs> I've heard from people. They were like, yep, that's when I wanted to. When I knew I wanted to do theater, or that's when yeah. I knew I was gay, or that's when you know this pivotal moment and hocus pocus is so much of this for so many people. It's true, and I actually got connected with Bette Midler this past year because Mark Shaman, who did the arrangements for the original Hocus Pocus movie, reached out to me when Bette was producing her Huluween fundraiser for the New York Restoration Project, and he asked if he could use my charts for Bette. Um, Because she now sings in the key that I sing, I put a spell on you. So I was actually able to give Mark our charts and our recording 
Um, and so she actually sang on the music that we created for our live show. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> oh, you've got to get her to return the favor or something and like guest appear, do some guest appearance this year. We're working on it, Alan. We're working on it, Alan. <laughs> Your mouth to God's ears. Make it happen, Jay. Make That's it happen. happen. Let's end here with the three standard closing questions that I ask everybody to wrap up the episodes. The first one just very simply is what motivates you? Fear of failure. <laughs> fair. <laughs> Very mean, fair. I mean, that's kind of a negative way to look at it. But I often tell the kids that I teach or when I do talk back sessions with groups of aspiring young artists that I will never be satisfied. So regardless of um, where I get in my career, I always want to strive to learn more, to do more. Um, okay, so then what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Um, I'd probably have to say as hard as you're studying, you're acting and you're singing and you're dancing, study mindfulness. My friends, Mary Michael Patterson and Ahmad Simmons and I started this company during the pandemic called Bridge Arts Project. Um, and it was a way for us to kind of reconnect, especially with our DFW arts world. And it's an education and mentorship program that actually goes into schools and different arts institutions um, to teach masterclasses and to start um, men uh, mentoring young aspiring artists. And that's um, a huge part of what we're doing because um, we feel like when we were taught um, the kind of old school way of learning how to be a theater artist was to like, go hard uh, to eat nails um, to like put everything, put, put the art above everything else. And so as we like found ourselves in the industry and doing eight shows a week on Broadway and the pressures of what it means to kind of deliver um, on that level, on like an Olympic type level, um, mm -hmm. we started finding our like mental health practice way later in life. And so I feel like if we can start instilling um, that idea of mindfulness around our practice of what it is that we do artistically that I think that it'll set artists up for way more success in the future. I love that. And I, I could not agree more. It's so important to maintain your mental health as much as your physical, physical health. And I've said it a bajillion times on this podcast, Broadway <laughs> performers are the Olympians of theater. I'm glad you said that too. Okay. Cool. Last question then. Hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Oh my God. That is a wildly hard question. Oh man. It would probably have to be hair, if I'm being completely honest. As someone that was a swing in that show, I did watch it 17 million times because <laughs> I was mostly off stage, and I watched it with new eyes every time I watched it. Specifically that 2009 revival, I mean, it was just really beautifully done by Miss Diane Paulus. And so, yeah, it's... It's hair. It's always going to have that place in my heart. That cast is always going to have a place in my heart. We still have a text thread that's been going for 12 years, and we text each other almost every single day. Wow. So just anytime I hear a song, whether it was from the original recording or from our recording or some cover of it, it always gives me nostalgia and happiness and hope and all the good feels. So I guess it would have to be hair. 
All right. So everyone check the show notes for the ticketing and live streaming info for his birthday show on September 1st. Happy early birthday, Jay, by the way. Hey, thanks, Alan. You're to look a day over 25. <laughs> and if you're in town, go see it in person on 54 below. Of course, check broadwaycares.org slash spell for the latest info on the Hocus Pocus themed I put a spell on you and just give back if you're able to. Where else can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on social media at J underscore A underscore Johnson because I wanted to make your life really difficult when you type that in. Other than that, yeah, that's that's where you can find me or go to my website, jarmstrongjohnson.org, um, which I probably should update soon because, well, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> you can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast because I also like making people's lives hard. I'm on <laughs> Facebook slash official theater podcast. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you are listening. Tell your friends. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Jay Armstrong Johnson, thank you so much. This has been such a fun chat. Thank you, Alan. This was a blast. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.